Ali Baker, she, her, an education lecturer and children's fantasy literature researcher at University of East London. You're listening to Fantasy Book Swap, where a guest and I swap children's fantasy fiction, one classic and one contemporary, and we discuss them. Today, I'm joined by Fran Dowd, Moomin lover, con runner, SF fan and foodie. Hello. Hello. So what have you been up to recently? Um, not a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> we run the Sheffield uh, Science Fiction and, and Fantasy group, and obviously that's gone online. Mm. And since our experience of online conventions, we've started a Discord. And I'm running a book group and a film club in that. So that's been what I've been up to mostly. Quite fun. I think it's one of the really interesting things that all of the downsides of um, COVID pandemic, um, it's wonderful that people have used um, online spaces, Zooms and um, Discords to, to keep in touch with friends far away often. And that, that's a wonderful thing, I think. Well, yes, especially with something like the Sheffield Group which mm. when it meets in person, is quite often only a few people and it's a pub meeting mm. on a Sunday afternoon. And people who are quite local to us quite mm. often can't get there for various reasons. But with the Zoom meeting, mm. we've been having people from literally all over the world who, who feel connected to Sheffield fandom in some way and it's been absolutely wonderful, and I want to find a way to continue that. I think a lot of people are going to want to continue it, actually, you know, and, and maybe have some kind of hybrid of, of attendance at events. Um, I'm not particularly a Zoom person. I suppose, I think because I use it, not Zoom, but I, uh, I use online meetings for work so much, and it, my whole job was on Microsoft Teams for such a long time that I didn't really enjoy online. Well, I don't. I don't mind um, not face-to-face socialising. And Discord is great. I love Discord, but the on the face-to-face stuff uh, on Zoom, I, I found exhausting. But now my job is back in person. Maybe I'll feel differently. I don't know. But um, yeah, I, th- I think it's great, particularly for people who have traditionally been excluded from going to a lot of of, um, meetings that were held in pubs for not drinking reasons, for religious reasons, cultural reasons, or simply because a lot of pubs, unfortunately, are not very accessible to uh, people with mobility issues. So I think think there will be a lot of people who want to continue. Um, I think it's a positive thing. So, You've just shown me your amazing gold puffing club badge. <laughs> Tell us the story behind that. I'm so envious. Uh, puffing club started in the late 60s, 67, I think. Mm. Um, I was born in 1959. Uh, my parents were both teachers. My father in a primary school. Mm. Uh, so I'm not sure how we heard about it, I suspect, through Dad. Mm. And they joined me up quite quickly. I'm still, I'm not in, wasn't in the top thousand. Right. I know I, I can't remember my membership number, but it was over a thousand. But in those days, I know a lot of people came to the Puffing Club and it was... Uh, kind of marketing outreach program mm. that went to primary schools mm. and Libraries. showed kids books and things mm. like that. Um, but in the beginning, it was quite different. And I have to say, this is not my personal ephemera because that's gone in the mists of time. Uh, but I did find, and there are many others available on auction sites of your choice. <gasps> Oh, this wow. is a red Puff- plastic portfolio. Yes. 
which you got uh, one of these a year, and in it you kept your Puffin Post magazine. magazine. Yes. So this is volume two, so this <gasps> is the second year, and this is number three, so this is 19, autumn 1968. Oh, look at that beautiful 1968 style art. That's just wonderful. And it was like the best fanzine ever. Yes. There's all kinds of stuff in it. And they organised things. There were picnics and outings and gatherings and walkabouts. And uh, there's a whole... Um, Liverpool, we've reserved a hundred seats for Puffin Club members at the Liverpool Playhouse for a performance of The Thirteen Clocks by Norman Hunter. Wow. Well, well, not to, it was an adaptation by yeah. him. Um, signings and the magazine itself was full of um, original fiction. Uh, interviews, competitions, and the competitions could be quite. There was one I found that was here's a very simple modern poem in French. Here are some of the pitfalls of translating things. Do you want to think about those while you have a go at it? And you could send us your. And it was just, it assumed a level of not just education, but commitment and interest. It yes. didn't dumb things down at all. And then it had, yes, marketing stuff. Mm. It said, you know, these are the new puffins that are coming out. That in yellow the next one. Couple of months. The yellow one on the top line, this is great for people listening. Um, is that The Growing Summer by. It is, yeah, yes. by Noel Stratfield. Yes, I've got that edition. Or I, no, I haven't got it anymore. I used to have that edition. Mm. And some of it was older stuff and some of it was new fiction and some of it was non-fiction mm. even as well. And you could get, um, there was a club diary that you, yes. you could get for the next year. All sorts of stuff. A remarkable science fiction story by club member Alexander Cox, aged 13. Wow. Yes. Um, but it was very much a club mm. that, that you belonged to, and you could wear your badge and you could go to things and you could say, Yeah, and you could write letters. Mm. Yes. Mm. I so remember. I think, uh, I think it was quite an involving experience. Yes. I remember an author, and I wish I could remember who the author was coming to sign books at my local library as part of the Puffing Club because I think Puffing Club things used to happen in the library rather than in my school which was my school was a bit strange um but um, yeah we had um we had a school sheep <laughs> my primary school an actual sheep yeah I mean that, I know that doesn't mean that there wasn't uh, also stuff going on so shall we make a start on talking about Hobbity Dick, which was your choice. Yes. Uh, and I must say, this was the a new book to me. Um, I don't remember it as a child at all. But um, can you summarise the plot for us? It's set in 1653. Mm. So in the interregnum. Um, after the Civil War, mm. and it's set in rural Oxfordshire around a manor farmhouse. Mm. And the family that owned it, the Culvers, were um, wrong but romantic. Yes. And were on the, the wrong <laughs> side in the Civil War. And have, uh, some of them died, some of them had to leave the country, they have no money. Mm. So they sell up the estate and it's bought by a Puritan London merchant. Mm. And he brings his family 
to live there. And it's a big and complicated family. There's his uh, young adult son from his first marriage and his mother-in-law from his first marriage mm. and his second younger wife and a horde of children, um, mm. three small girls, uh, a toddler, a baby, um, and all their servants. And they come to, to live in this environment that they're not used to. And he takes on a local bloke to be the stockman and general farm person. And his wife finds a, a distressed gentlewoman mm. uh, who's a young girl who turns out to be related to the family that, that mm. lived there originally. And she takes her on as a kind of a cross between a lady's maid and a companion mm. and a maid of honour, someone to make her look grand, stand yeah. behind her at dinner, holding her fan and things like that. So there's this huge and complicated household. But there's another member of the household who is Hobbity Dick. He is a hob, a lob, what I think the commonest thing that people would be used to is a brownie. Yes. Uh, he's attached to the estate rather than the people. He's mm. not dependent on a particular family. And his role is to make it a happy place mm. or a contented, uh, mm. prosperous place. And he does all kinds of stuff. He does minor maintenance, farm mm. work and all sorts of things no one could well he technically no <laughs> technically no one can see him but people do people can mm. uh, especially the the local farm mm. bloke george um who knows what he should be doing mm. when he what he should be feeding leaving out mm. the dick to eat um, what he should be looking after, keeping an eye on things. And it's the story really of the first year or so of this family being there. It's odd because it's lots of little stories. Mm. Um, there's an ad a very a very adult and chaste and respectable love story mm. between the son of the household and the distressed gentlewoman. Yes. There's a lot of religious elements in it. Uh, the Puritans, mm. uh, the neighbours are an old family, possibly still Catholic. It's a bit mm. So there's all sorts of odd things going on and partly because of the Puritans stirring things up mm. it. there's a lot of bad magic stuff going on there are imps and mm. there's a, a witch mother dark who tries to enslave Dick at one point for her own purposes there's the children coming to realise that they're in a different world to mm. the one they used to. It is a complex book, and I can see why it's kind of fallen out of favour. Mm. Because it doesn't have, although Dick is the central character running through it, it's, he's not the narrator. Yes. There are chunks of it that are not written from his point of view. Mm. And it tends to swerve between different characters. So there's no one you can latch on to, really. Yes. The one young girl, Martha, there's mm. quite a lot of her story going through it as she adjusts to country life and she gets involved in the plot by Mother mm. Dark to Slave. 
that kind of doesn't come to anything really no. she just fades into the background that that's a that's a really interesting point because the ending of the book is um it's very much like kind of the ending of a shakespearean comedy in that the right people are paired off the right people are not exactly punished but get their get a, a correction and then um and the gentlewoman sews some clothes for dick he gets to choose whether or not he takes them and then he is freed from the man he chooses to be free of the manor but it's a very kind of it's a weird point that the the kind of the, the peril that Martha is in with Mother Dark is not the climax of the book that's not yeah. it, it's really it's a very strange pacing I think and I enjoyed reading it as an adult but I I am not sure how much I would have enjoyed it as a child. Um, I think I would have found it maybe a bit boring um, to begin with. I mean, the, the countryside, because um, Catherine Briggs, K.M. Briggs, who wrote the book, was um, a very well-known folklore specialist, wasn't she? Yeah. And so I, I sort of felt that the folklore which was very interesting, was driving the narrative rather than the characters. Yeah. Um, and I, I, like I said, I enjoyed it. I, I liked finding out about the folklore. And it was quite similar to some of Alison Utley's books, which I did enjoy uh, reading as a child about um, countryside myths, legends and, and stories. Um, which edition did you have? My edition is an old puffin um, from 1976, and it's got amazing illustrations yes. uh, that I don't think were contemporary illustrations. Scholar Anderson, a Scottish artist, um, but they don't look like 1950s illustrations to me. I might be wrong. Um, can, you can you show me one? Uh, yeah, Hobbity, where's Hobbity Dick? At the, this is the same as the front yes. cover. Yeah. Um, the edition I've currently got at the minute, because I have two old copies of it, but they're in a box upstairs. So I, the easiest thing to do was I got the current edition, which uh, is yes. the Faber. Yes, um, have done a, a a reprint, but it has no illustrations in it at all. Mm. And certainly, the one that you've got there is the illustrations that I remember. Mm. So maybe um, they were contemporary. Yeah, the first one I had did not have that cover mm. with them uh, at the Rollwright Stones. Yes. Um, I can't remember what it was on the cover, but it wasn't that. But I think that illustration was in the book. Mm. Going back to why it appealed to me as a child was that that was my landscape. Right. Because I was, well, when I was born, my parents lived in a village called Middleton Sheeney, which was just outside uh, Banbury. Mm. It's now a bit of a commuter place for Oxford and even London mm. but it was a small village and we had uh, civil war soldier ghosts in the churchyard right there were I was at school with children whose names were on all the memorials mm. uh, possibly I'm being fanciful about it but I remember it, it wasn't timeless, mm. but a lot of the eras of history seemed closer together. Mm. And I think there were people that I knew who knew what side people had been on in the Civil War. 
Wow. And that there were rifts in the village still mm. about that. And that's probably me being fanciful. But certainly people knew in the graveyard who, who their relatives were. And there mm. was, there'd been a battle nearby mm. and all the dead Puritans were buried in a lump around the back of the church. Right. And they were supposed to come if you mm. went in there at certain times of, of the evening. Even when we moved a bit away, we went through that landscape a lot because we travelled back to my grandparents in Wales right. um, every school holiday. And that was the, the route that we used because mm. the M4 wasn't really available. <laughs> And so we'd stop at the Rollwright Stones. That was a place I used to go and play. Burford, where uh, Briggs uh, lived in her retirement, mm. was not far away. And that kind of... The folklore and the religion thing mm. always fascinated me because we were Methodists. Um, so not Puritans in that way, but mm. apart from the mm. regular church. And there's quite a lot in Hobbity Dick about the different powers and the different worlds of the different mm. religions. And that seemed to resonate with me. There were... It called to me, I think, in a way that a lot of other books mm. didn't. And over the years, it has remained one of my favourites. And every time I reread it, I notice mm. something that struck me this time when I read it that I had just had passed me by before. In the beginning, when the original family have gone, mm. and it makes it quite clear that they have only been there for a couple of hundred years. Yes. And that he, his relationship is with that piece of land, that property, mm. not with the family. He yes. could have, that there's a mechanical way where if he'd snuck into their some of their furniture, he could have gone to be mm. with them and he chooses like, not to. Like the ghost who comes from London with... The Puritan family um, and is haunting the bed rather yes. than haunting the house. I love that bit. It's so funny. And um, it's, yeah, it, it brings a whole thing about capitalism and different mm. economies, the, mm. the ghost in the bed, because he spends his entire nights counting his money and being afraid that he's lost some of it. And he influences the dreams and thoughts yes. of the Puritan merchant. But there's one tiny little bit when, after the family have gone, and Dick isn't sure that he wants new people. Mm. So whenever anyone comes to look round, he goes down the well and shouts, woo, <laughs> yes. and things like that. And eventually realises that he's not doing himself any favours. He's lonely. Mm. Uh, he likes, he's a party animal. Mm. Dick, he loves it when everyone gets together in the barn and brings in all the illegal alcohol and folk music and has a big knees up. He loves that. Mm. And he realises it's a bad thing. And there's one little bit where it says, he had not known it so desolate for 300 years. And for the first time, I thought, what happened 300 mm. years ago? And then I realised it was the play, 1300 and something. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the Black yeah, Death. that whole, it would be like Connie Willis's doomsday. Mm. The, the village would just have, mm. have vanished completely. Yeah, I think... I found one of the, because of my research, children's literature research, I had done quite a lot of research into um, some of the mythology of 
the folklore of um, Britain and, and Europe when writing about um, Harry Potter. But I'm sure some, some of our listeners will be thinking, hold on, giving a character clothes makes them leave. And yeah, I, I do think that um, the house elves from Harry Potter oh, were yeah. based on the hobs or the lobs or brownies of, of British folklore. And interestingly enough, there was an adaptation, well, at least two adaptations of Hobbity Dick. One of them is a German, or I don't, it might be a German translation of the Japanese um, animation, which is called Hobbity Dick Das Haus Elf. So the German word for uh, a hob or a lob is a house elf. So, but yeah, as you, as you point out, in the original folk folklore, the um, hobgoblin was attached to the house, looked after the house, made sure that things were running properly within the house. And uh, if he wasn't treated right, he could get up to mischief. Um, he pinches the um, unkind characters uh, and yeah. stops them sleeping well. Um, you know, he, he ruins food if he wants to, um, which of course would have been a really big deal uh, at that time. But in um, J.K. Rowling's version of, uh, it, it is slavery. They are attached to the family and there is no kind of compensation to the uh, house elf um, because in all, in, to do so would be to um, release the house elf and they're there to do housework, which is not Hobbity Dick's job. He hmm. is there to make sure that the housework is done properly, um, but there's still, you know, the maids and the children of the house uh, still have their, their own chores to do. I wonder if that's part of why it's not, why it's fallen out of favour mm. because he is a slave he is mm. bound he can't get away by himself uh he can be kidnapped into a worse kind of slavery yes. uh, which is what mother dark tries to do by calling him and mm. trying to find out his real name so mm. that she can she can have him and use him and there's the yes you can you humans can gift them mm. with choices mm. and they're very difficult choices because he gets offered um a broom which is mm. um i'm staying put thank you very much um and when he touches the broom he can see what the future will bring mm. how that will pan out what the families would be like how it will work he gets offered the two different suits of clothes and one is an entry to fairyland mm -hmm. and i actually marked that bit because the phrase i love the phrasing um the freedom of all the hollow hills in the country but mm. fairyland was no temptation to him he had no wish to join that simulated antic mirth nor to enjoy those dusty splendours. Mm. There's already that thing about fairies aren't three mm. little tinkerbells with pretty wings and they're mm. not the Cottesloe fairy photographs. They are yes. the fae as, as we've known them before. Yes. But the, the other suit is the... It's Christian in a way that he... All the way through the book, he recognises, especially when people mm. are praying or having very religious experiences, that there's a light, a, a power around them that attracts and terrifies him because he doesn't understand it. And mm. the other suit is the entry to that. Yes. And that's, in the end, that's what he, he chooses. 
yes, it's sort of like an entry to heaven, isn't it? Mm. Um, that that he chooses in the end, and it's he's laying down his cares and and going to his ultimate freedom, um, which is very interesting because, of course, traditionally, fairy folk have no souls, but mm. uh, Dick has something else, which is like a soul. What did you think about the other um, magical beings? There, there's, um, we talked about the witches, Mother Dark, who's definitely an evil witch. She's not a, a good witch um, in any, any way. But we've also got ghosts, there's the Grim, um, there are other creatures. And what, what did you, the, the ones that Dick hangs out with and uses in order to rescue Martha and to do other important yeah. um, tasks? And a lot of them are just his neighbours. Mm. They're people that have similar roles in, in neighbouring estates. The interesting one is across the fields is the uh, Fetty Place mm. household, which was um, part of the monastery lands mm. sold off by Henry mm. VIII. And the ghost that they have, or the, mm. the being that, that works with them, is uh, called the Abbey Lubber. Mm. And he's antagonistic mm. because he's part of, sees himself as part of the Abbey. Mm. And his role is slowly but surely to bring about the destruction of the family. Mm. Yes. And when Dick touches the broom at the end and can see the future, that is part mm. of the future that the Fetty Place has come to live there finally to escape mm. uh, the doom and disaster that the Abbey Lubber is, is bringing. So they're not all uh, benevolent. No, but not by any means. And the Grim lives in a churchyard. Mm. Uh, he's not attached to people or a family. I'm not sure what, what the Grim's role is in the world yeah. in general, I mean, in well, the story. Yeah, in, in, um, in, folk, in folklore in a lot of places, he's called Black Shuck, he's called a Bargast, he's called a Guy Trash, and he's a foreteller of death. Um, if you remember in Harry Potter books, that Sirius is a black dog, and he is indeed a foreteller of death. And um, you know, the other book we're going to be talking about, there are black dogs in that as well. Um, but he doesn't really seem to foretell death. I was trying to think back on the timeline. He doesn't appear to Mrs. Dimbleby, for example, the, the mother-in-law of, of the merchant, uh, who, whose death in the book brings about the love affair between Anne and Joel, the oldest member of the, the family and her her death isn't a terrible thing anyway mm. it's an expected and, and wished for you know she wishes for her death um, and and in some ways chooses to die um, because she she knows that she's her place on the earth is gone now so yeah that that's interesting I don't know whether maybe in Oxfordshire the the Grimm's role isn't in Oxfordshire folklore I mean the Grimm's role is not to foretell death I don't know it's maybe it's just a black mystical black dog that is seen um but she didn't choose to focus that on that aspect of the Grimm I think and in fact he is able to use his ability to turn into a black dog to help Hobbity Dig and and to rescue Martha and, you know, there are black dogs that are not foretellers of death in various parts of the world, but I haven't been, you know, I did a very quick Google and couldn't find one in Oxfordshire, but, but no doubt uh, Catherine Briggs knew what she was doing with, with that, that role. 
Shall we go on to talk about our, our second book then, um, mm. which is The We Free Men by um, Terry Pratchett. It's one of my all-time favourite authors. So I'll, do, I'll read the, the blurb, which is on the back of my, my book, um, which says, Crivens, what about us, you dufty? There's trouble at the aching farm, nightmares spreading down from the hills and Tiffany Aching's little brother has been stolen away. To get him back, Tiffany has a weapon, a frying pan, her granny's magic book, well, Diseases of the Sheep, and the Knack Feagle, the wee free men, the fighting, thieving, tiny blue-skinned pixies who were thrown out of fair fairyland for being drunk and disorderly. And um, interestingly enough, this, the, the book, back of this book reminds me that uh, Terry Pratchett won the Carnegie Medal in 2001. This book was, is from 2003. And he won the Carnegie for The Amazing Morris and His Educated Rodents, which I think is an absolutely brilliant book, but it's not one of the juveniles that he's best known for. I mm. think that probably um, the Tiffany A. King um, sequence is actually what he's known for now in children's books. Um, have you had, had you read The Wee Free Men? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, I thought you probably had. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're not the Pratchett's I reread the mm. most um, because I not the target market, really, not yes. the demographic for them, but. I did enjoy them and it was really interesting to reread mm. with Hobbity Dick in mind. Yes. And because I'm so attached to the landscape mm. in Hobbity Dick, that was interesting to me mm. because it's on the chalk. Yes. And that is a whole different landscape with a different set. Mm. of myths um if you think about the oxfordshire where where hobbity dick is mm. that's a whole place in english mm. fiction which is it's midsummer it's mm. um dibley it's mm. all those kind of places and it's bordered to the south by the chalk yes which is Stonehenge and Salisbury it, Plain. Salisbury Plain. It's mm. a whole other set mm. of of myths, and I yes, I really enjoyed thinking about that aspect mm. of it, it. It is very different because I live well. The South Downs sort of starts about five miles from me um in um devil's dyke and it is a very it's very high it's very high up um above sea level that's that's one interesting thing you really can see for miles if you've got if you're on a high bit of of the, the chalk but also the landscape is very different it's very open it's very exposed um it's uh you do get sort of little dells and forest, you know, bits of woodland, but it's mostly it's open, and that I think is very different from how. I mean, I've only been to Burford once, but I do remember lots of woods around it, and it also being in a valley, so it is very different. Um, and I think that well, that's an because Miss Tick keeps on reiterating that you can't grow a witch on chalk. But I think if you kind of go to parts of the more exposed parts of the downlands and you see the way that the wind has shaped the trees, you have to be extremely tenacious to survive um, as, as a piece of vegetation on <laughs> the chalkland or, or the, the animals or their birds they all have to be quite uh, tough. 
and I think that's what something that Pratchett is implying is how tenacious and resilient and morally strong Tiffany is uh, mm. and her self-confidence, her self-belief and her very, very strong moral compass is what actually makes her a witch rather mm. than any kind of innate magical ability. Uh, and that's something he, he reiterates a lot with uh, the witches, isn't it? That, that yeah. magic is a, it, it's quite a, a, quite different things. It means different things to different people. Um, and and I, I just adore uh, Tiffany. I think she's a fantastic character. Um, and I, I love Miss Tick as well. I think, I think she's probably the character I most sort of empathise with in the book. So one of the things we were talking about before we, when we were discussing what we were going to, um, what we were going to cover in this, this podcast, was we talked about um, Pratchett's inspiration, which was very definitely um, English folklore. I mean, as we all know, Pratchett was an autodidact. He um, was interested in everything and found out about everything. But he did himself at one point um, state that his inspiration was the little grey men uh, by BB. And I know that you went back and, and had a look at the little grey men, didn't you? What, what did you yeah. think about that? I'd, I had not, to my knowledge, encountered that before. And oh, it's really difficult really difficult book to come yes. at you can see a transition yeah it was written in wartime yes and it was written by an incredibly privileged person mm. a white male tutor at rugby mm -hmm. so embedded in in privilege and mm. not exposed really to the to the real world at all would have been exempt from military service would have lived in this in this tiny world and it is so male it reminds me very much of wind in the willows yes in that way that kind of even though there's you know a long ex it's 40 years roughly between the two books because the Little Grey Men was published during the war, which is interesting to me because in my the first episode, I talked to Helena about um, the Magic Faraway Tree, which was also published in the war, also set in the English countryside. But it was it feels like it's an early piece of ecology, I think, and and um, conservation writing, but it is also and very anti-modern, very anti the contemporary world. And I think that that's where it and Wind in the Willows are similar. You know, the kind of the coming of the motor car and how that is ruining the riverbank and, you know, the, the coming of in industry, you know, the heavy industry that was being carried out in Warwickshire at the time of the Little, little Grey Men. But also there are no girls or women or female characters in the book at all. It's the world of men, um, world of males. Um, the, the little boy mm. um, has a mother, but mm. she's not. She doesn't appear on the page, no, really. She doesn't have a yeah. role. Yeah. Um, yes. And... and Another one it forcibly reminded me of was Three Men in a Boat. Yes. Um, because there's huge chunks of that that yeah. people forget about. They remember the, the comedy stuff. Yeah. But there's huge chunks of that that are absolutely lyrical. Yes. About yeah. the river and, and the landscape. Yes. And there was a big part of that in it. But yes, and... To me, it was absolutely tragic yeah. because he obviously loves this world, the mm. riverbank, the meadows, um, 
all the, the plants and animals and it was even at that point vanishing because mm. of wartime agricultural mm. policy. Um, yes, he talks about how um, the, the kind of the, the chemicals from the land are infecting the water, how that is affecting the way of life of the kingfisher, but also of, of the little grey men themselves who you know, rely on fish for food, but also for um, materials for creating, um, they use the fish bones for a variety of things, don't they? But yeah, it's, and I, I found that really interesting um, because I, my teacher who was called Sheila Bradbury, read this book to my class when I was around seven, I think. And I did remember a lot about it, but I think I got it modelled up in my mind with the borrowers. Because yes. the bits that I was mostly remembering was about the rescue, going to rescue Cloudberry. And so I, I hadn't really, I didn't remember a lot of the, the conservation stuff at all. Um, but I wondered about, I mean, how Pratchett uses popular culture, how he uses folklore and upends it to tell uh, these stories. It's just fascinating to me how he grasps material from everywhere and boils it down to its essence. And it, it tells the story in, without you needing to know anything about the story. I mean, you don't need to know about the little gray men in order to enjoy the pixies. You don't really need to know about folklore in order to understand that Tiffany seeing a headless horseman would be terrifying. And that kind of that Jenny Green teeth and br the bringing of the destructive elements of fairyland because of the queen of the elves selfishness and um, immaturity. Um, Tiffany picks up on that she's like a child who's never grown up and wants things just because she wants them and she doesn't consider the lives of others you know she just wants her little brother yeah which, which is another trope and yes. there's it's it's in Hobbity Dick but it's played down a bit the idea yes. that the girls, however young they are, have a responsibility towards their little brothers. Yes. And are quite often in charge of them on a, mm -hmm. on a daily basis, have to keep them from harm. Yes. And that is in the Tiffany books mm -hmm. and, go, and going back through mm -hmm. history, there's the, there's the whole Titania Oberon having mm -hmm. the round. Which yes. the boy. But yes, you don't need to know about that. You don't need to know that that's you don't, need, you don't need to know about the um Fairy Fellows Masterstroke, the Richard Dad painting either. Um mm. and I, I just love that about Pratchett's children's books, is that they are no less complex and multi-layered than his books for adults. And you can read them on a number of different levels. You can go back and reread them. And much like Hobbit and Dick, get something different each mm -hmm. time you read it. Um, I just think they're wonderful. Um, and one of the things I loved about The Wee Freeman mm -hmm. is it deals so well with what we were talking about earlier, this slavery mm -hmm. that. Hobbity Dick is enslaved to a certain extent. Mm. He has agency within his own mm -hmm. life and behaviour, but he is not free. No. Um, and the worst end of that is Dobby. Mm. Um, but the other end of it is the Nat McFeagles who yes. are are oh, absolutely, we got conned like that once, it's not happening again. Yes. And actually have these anti-slavery chants. 
guess, nay king, nay queen, nay laird, we won't get fooled again. <laughs> and, and I love that because I think it's, it's a way of making that accessible to modern slavery with young people without making enslaved peoples sound um, weak. Because mm. it, the narrative that goes through slavery is very much about white saviors. Um, when it, well, certainly when I learned about it at, at school, when I taught about um, slavery at, when I was a teacher, I was very, very careful to talk about slave uprisings, Toussaint Louverture, the Maroons in, in um, the Caribbean and so on. And this is absolutely um, the Nat MacFeagles got themselves kicked out through rebelling. Um, mm. And that, that's, uh, that's a lovely thing, actually. Um, we talked a little, we talked before about religion and belief systems in the, um, in Hobbity Dick. Um, and there is, there is an element of belief systems and there, there's not a mention of, I mean, uh, Pratchett was famously um, a humanist and an atheist. He was not a Christian, didn't follow any other belief, but he does talk about the Mac McFeagle's belief systems, doesn't he? Mm. Um, which are, are very, very, make a lot of sense to, if you think about it from what the Nat McFeagles like to do, uh, which is to fight, drink and steal. And they get to do that in this world. So therefore they think it's, they think they're already dead. They've gone to their Valhalla. Um, what, what did you think about that bit? It's fascinating, isn't it? That mm. where you're going to go on to yeah. um, is somewhere quite peaceful and boring. Yes. <laughs> in a way. That you're going to go back to, yeah. to where you were before. Um, and th this idea that you don't have to ha take responsibility mm. for your actions because you're dead. Yeah. yeah. You're, just, you're just having fun. And it's how they tread that maze between... Mm what I want to do, what might be the right thing to do, but why am I thinking that's important? Mm. And they do behave in quite a moral way. Yes. A lot of the time. Against, against their best wishes, they end yes. up doing moral things because they've been given a geese by the Kelder, um, by yeah. their the former Calder who, the old Calder who died, their, their sort of queen. Um, so although they say no king, no queen, no lad, they do actually have uh, the Calder who's like their, their mum. In, yes, in, it's, she's mum, isn't she? Yeah. Well, it's in those, uh, especially the English translations mm. of, of some of the Welsh things, this concept that there are no fathers mm. as such. There are brothers. Mm. And that because that's the only your your mother's children are the only people that you can be absolutely convinced you're related to. Yes. Mm. And the idea that a woman goes out with her brothers mm. and, and starts a tribe and a family. So yeah, she's she's mum, she's auntie, mm. in all and with all that word implies from mm. Caribbean and mm -hmm. Indian things, aunties are. It's a title and it's one you earn, and it's yes. very very powerful. And mm. um, yes, the Kelder is the one who's got the common sense. Mm. Yes, yeah. She's sort of like the queen bee, mm -hmm. yeah. Because and that that did bother me about the little grey men. Mm. Um, at least when you get to the ends, Tolkien's ends, 
they have lost the end wives. Yes. They are remarkably stupid. Yes. But at, but at least they have them. And the little grey men, there's no sense at all that, that they ever had mothers, sisters, and they talk about themselves as being the last. Mm. And they don't know that because they don't travel that far from home. They have no basis mm. for believing that they're the last group. But of and course you're the last group. You're not yeah. reading. Yes. And and um Cloudberry is um is seen as the bad guy, the rebellious guy, because he has gone off on his own to go and seek out uh new places, new things, new little great new little gray men, whatever. And and he is considered wrong for doing so, for, mm. for going out on his own. Um, when I was doing some research for this, and I already knew about Steel Ice Band's Winter Smith's music uh, um, album, and it's got a, a track on it called We Free Men, which is I'm going to put in the show notes. But I did discover um, a track by a musician called Rod Anderson, who is a well-known um, backing musician, multi-instrumentalist, and composer uh, called Hobbity Dick, um, mm. which again I will add in the, the show notes. But he has taken a lot of the epigraphs from the chapters, the quotations, the sayings, uh, Hickety, Pickety, my red hen, she mm. lays eggs for gentlemen, and so on, which was a skipping rhyme when I was growing up. Uh, how many eggs will she lay? One, two, three, four, five, and you. You count until you stumble over, and that's how many eggs Hickety Pickety is going to lay. Um, but that, I, I thought that that was interesting. I, I mean, children's literature is often um, something that inspires, uh, and fairy tales, something that inspires music and musicians. But um, yeah, it's a very sort of uh, acoustic guitar folk type music which I will add to the uh, to the show notes as I say was there anything else you wanted to to mention or talk about um let me bring up my notes um good omens yes yes um because again going back to that the encapsulated landscape mm is the landscape of the children mm. in Good Omens is very much that kind of the, the hobbity dick mm. central England and even down to the air bases mm. um, one of the great joys when I was a child um, going through these little country lanes yeah. was the amazing cars that would suddenly materialize yes that were from the, the families who lived on the on the American air bases. And yes. I mean, in those days, the early 60s, they were ginormous, brightly coloured, huge great fins and chrome and shiny. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, there's a whole load of that kind of stuff. And also um, the sense of, of history. and. And partly because Pratchett is very careful yes. in this world that there is no sense of uh, the past. Mm. There's no, you can't easily match things to periods in this world's history. Mm. Um, but in Good Omens, you really can because there's the long story mm. of the and Hobbity Dick has that as well. Um, I started reading um, John Christopher's No Blade of Grass. Oh, I don't know that one. Uh, I, I'm doing a, a course with Tony Keane on London Fantastic. Oh, yes. And yesterday we talked about Day of the Triffids. Mm. And people said, oh, let's, you know, 
there's the, the no blade of grass. And I didn't really remember it, so I went to, to read it again. And very early on, there's a, someone talks about how rural landscape is constantly in transition mm. and that urban people don't think that. Mm. And urban landscape, really, all you do is change one building for another. Yes, it's, that's very true. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that when we're talking about thinking about conservation and the way that the humans have impacted on landscape, humans have always impacted oh, yeah. on landscape because otherwise, well, both of us are sitting now in our, in our homes would actually be covered in forest. Yeah. And the kind of landscape that people think of as the classic English landscape is a result of the agricultural revolution yeah. and the enclosure of common land and, and so on uh, by, by uh, big landowners. So it's, it, it's not naturally fields with sheep in. It's yeah. that way because of human intervention. Yeah, and it's part of an ongoing discussion I have with friends who are vegetarians and vegans. Mm. And quite a lot of people who have emigrated to Sheffield mm. because they love the Peak District and, and yeah. they go walking and cycling and wild swimming and all that mm. kind of stuff. Um, but also, um, they don't eat meat or they don't want to wear wool. Mm. And I say to them, but you know the landscape that you love is that landscape because yeah. of, of sheep. And that if you don't eat the meat and you don't use the wool, then that landscape will, will vanish again. Yeah, we will stop keeping, farmers will stop keeping sheep or keeping cows if there is no... Uh, if there is no financial reason yeah. to do so. Yeah. And I, I'm a vegan myself, and, um, but if I was going to have to eat meat, it would be, I'd far rather kill it myself than, than industrial uh, animal cruelty. But yeah, I, I also completely understand that um, if, everybody, if everybody stopped eating, or using animal products why would there be beans why would there be um you know all sorts of uh beautiful things um and in in fact it would impact very heavily on bird life and wildlife wouldn't it you know that if hedges weren't there around fields then where would the hedgerow birds and animals go so, um when we had, when the Tour de France did a Yorkshire mm. uh, stage a few years ago, and that was hysterical, the commentary for that, um, because it was a landscape that they were completely unfamiliar with, mm. and they kept talking about the stone walls yes. around the fields. And saying, you know, no one knows why they're here. No one knows. Um, and of course, they're really dangerous for the cyclists and things like that. And I thought, you know nothing, do you? Yeah. Really? Um, the stone walls are there because if you want to clear a field, it's full of stones. Yeah. <laughs> you take them to the edge of the field and you put them in a pile. <laughs> and... And that fascinated me about the little grey men as well was the whole agricultural industry thing. Yeah. Because what is portrayed, who is portrayed in the book as being evil? Yes. And the gamekeeper mm -hmm. is the ultimate. Um, talk about peril. That total psychopath. Yes. Just yeah. awful, awful person. Um, but the pheasants themselves yeah. are not quite evil, evil, but definitely think of themselves as They're the aristocrats. special. Yeah. Yeah. Um, foxes are evil. 
yeah really really evil um and to the point where when the little boy is taken on his first hunt Mm. and blooded it's regarded as as a great thing he's he feels absolutely wonderful it's the best thing that's ever happened to Mm. him and And a fox ate um what's his name's the oldest little gray man he lost his leg because of a fox didn't he Mm. yeah um so there's a whole and it's as it is in Wind in the Willows, there's a whole load of anthropomorphism and... Classism. Mm. Yeah. And it's not just that these animals can talk, it's that these animals have uh, moral standpoints mm. and behaviours, and some of them are inherently evil. Mm. And they tend to be predators on farm animals yes yeah so foxes weasels stoats those kinds of things that will get your chickens yeah and they're they're the evil characters in in wind in the willows as well aren't they as as you said Yeah. yeah well thank you fran um where can people find you your projects online um, the easiest place is to uh, find me on Facebook and uh, as me or as the Sheffield Science Fiction and Fantasy Society. And if you're interested in that, then there are ways through that to the mm. Discord where we talk about all kinds of stuff and do or oh, watch alongs of MasterChef mm. celebrity. Yes. that's the big thing at the moment isn't it our current project and we'll be moving on to bake off shortly um but yeah film club book club all kinds of stuff and it's a very friendly and welcoming community Um, i will i will say that i i really enjoy being part of it although i can't do a lot of the the watch along read along but i come along for the chat and i enjoy that Okay, well, thank you for listening to episode six of Fantasy Book Swap. You can find us on Twitter at, at Fantasy Swap, the worst Twitter name ever. Um, Facebook at Fantasy Book Swap or by email at fantasybookswap at gmail.com. You can subscribe at most of your favourite podcast places. And I will, I'm happy to say that finally, Spotify and Apple have caught up woohoo or you can download from podbean thanks to steve vapor trails for production assistance and jack sadler johnson for use of his beautiful track bliss until next time bye